next uh, up is to speak for us is Dr. Francis Drummond, Breakthrough Cancer Research Unmet Needs. This is just an unbelievable thing that Francis has done, and I'm sure you'll find it very informative and interesting. Dr. Francis Drummond. Katrina has already um, gone through some of the statistics of, of the cancer burden in Ireland. Um, these are the invasive cancers only, so, uh, so these, this, uh, these numbers don't include the skin cancers. Um, so Ireland, there's over 23,000 invasive cancers um, diagnosed annually and 9,000 people will die of cancer annually. Um, in Galway, the figures for women um, or you will see, and I want to point this out, every time I speak I point this out, the burden is higher in men than women and has been since we started recording cancers, both deaths and um, incidents. So you'll see, I just want to show you the Galway figures. So for Galway, more than a thousand people are diagnosed in Galway every year and in Roscommon it's around 800. Okay. Um, Okay, and you'll see, so the Irish can or National Cancer Registry started recording um, cancer incidents and mortality in 1994. And you will see in Galway, um, the incidence has been increasing, um, but levelling off, which is great for men. Women, not so much, it's still increasing. So we have some work to do with regard to incidents. Roscommon, it appears to be levelling off as well, which is great news. But you will see men, women, men, women, the burden is higher in men. And we have to really start addressing this issue. The number of our mortality is also higher in men. The composition of cancers, you probably all know, um, they, for women, um, breast, lung and colorectal, followed by melanoma, are the highest incidence um, or cancer incidence in men. It's prostate, colorectal, lung and melanoma. Um, so that's, that's the burden we have currently. So that's the bad news. But as Katrina alluded to, the number of cancer survivors is increasing. So there is good news. In 2016, it was estimated that um, 173,000 people in Ireland were cancer survivors. So that means either in remission completely or managed, managed treatment. So what does that mean? Well, actually, before I do that, this is actually estimated to have increased to 200,000 this year. So the number of cancer survivors is increasing all the time. But what does that look like? Okay, how many counties in Ireland does that equate to? Guess what we see? <laughs> Roscommon, okay? The number of cancer survivors would fill Roscommon. Any more counties? Yes? Plus Longford, okay? And actually, the number of cancer survivors would fill Roscommon, Longford and Offaly. It's equal to that of those populations, okay? So we have a huge number of cancer survivors in Ireland. So that's the great news. 4% of the entire population is now a cancer survivor. That means one in 25 people in Ireland is a cancer survivor, okay? That's the good news. 
the Cancer Health Services, um, as of the, um, the strategy in 2006, were centralised. So this is where the Cancer Health Services are currently. So they were centralised into centres of excellence. And around these, because of the needs that Katrina has, and Honor have already pointed out, cancer support centres have been, you know, have been um, developed along near these hospitals. And the new National Cancer Strategy, um, 2017, it, as Katrina already said, emphasises survivorship, quality of life and integration of services as key objectives for this cancer strategy. At the moment, though, as this strategy points out, only two of the designated centres have psycho-oncology services currently. And... And there is an awareness that volunteer services in the community is picking up some of the some of this um, demand and is 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 meeting some of the needs of these survivors and of of these there's about forty groups or centres in the country. I'm delighted that Helen's here because Helen is the um, clinical lead for the NCCP for the psycho-oncology um, services. So she's going to be telling you about how this is going to happen. So that's really wonderful that Helen is here today. So I was part of this um, survey that we did through the NCCP to look at the unmet needs of cancer survivors in Ireland. And what we found was that there was 35 studies but of those 35 studies, people looked at quality of life, so looked at, at symptoms. But then us non-cancer people don't, we as, uh, there's a lot of assumptions there. So the assumption is if you have a symptom, there is a need. But what the, of what the, care, what the unmet needs survey asks, okay, you have a symptom, but has that been dealt with? Or do you have a remaining need? Okay, so only two of the studies actually looked at this. So were the needs being met? Okay, so basically you've got assumption here, direct measure here. So we've got a huge gap. We don't know basically what the unmet needs of cancer patients is currently. So that's one of the things we were going to do with this study. So this study is asking, so we've got supportive care in the community. But what's the benefit of it? And also, what's the cost of it? So how do you go about doing something like this? So you ask, what is the need for the service? You ask, who is using the service? And you do this by collecting the routine data that, uh, that you know, who's coming, why, what are they doing? Now, when I started this study, though, I, I know Jacqueline won't mind me saying this, but all the resources from the centre had been put into caring for the, for the people using the centre. There wasn't too much resources put into actually recording all, everything, you know, the uses, the people coming, right? So I turned into Donald Trump and I used the same mantra for, what, 12 months? If it's not recorded, it did not happen, Jacqueline. <laughs> so we set about doing a huge data recording piece for this. And I'm delighted it's been kept up in the centre now because, because if you don't know who's using the service and you don't know what they're using, you don't know if it's working. Okay, so that's one of the major things we did for this. Then you ask the people coming into, this, into the centre, 
by surveys and interviews, going, what are your needs and how are your needs being met? And also, what can we do better? Okay, what recommendations do you have? And finally, one of the huge gaps in Ireland, there's absolutely no costs for how much it costs to support cancer patients and their families in the community. So what we did was use all of this data, apply HSE costs and come up with the costs of this service. So that's what this study was. So I really wanted to do this, but we did in Banlaslow. Banlaslow is very, now I'm from Donegal, I'm from here, okay? You can see there's no, there's no, um, Centre of Excellence, and we have very few um, support centres. Now, I wore this today because I might choke up now, but my mother passed away from a really, really rare cancer. She had no one to talk to. She had no services whatsoever. She attended Sligo. There was just nothing, and it just broke my heart. But here, geographically, you have something similar. You know, you have, you have to travel for treatment. You know, she had to travel for treatment. And, you know, it, it, it's, it adds another complexity. I'm now living here where there, you know, there are centres of excellence, there are support centres. So, but also I met Jacqueline and Michael when I was doing a study on prostate cancer and I wanted to talk to people affected by prostate cancer. And Michael was one of the people I got in touch with. And so we met in the community centre which is where Jacqueline and Michael started this um, support centre. It was one room in the community centre and it was amazing. I met 40 men that night with the strongest tea I've ever had in my entire life. And I don't like strong tea, but I had to drink it. But anyway, it was amazing. Um, and some of them I've met since in the centre. Um, and that study was a great success. We went on to survey three and a half thousand men in the country, which was great. And we, uh, we got a great deal of data out of that. So that was great. So th they outgrew this very quickly, moved to Lakeila in 2010. And before long, as Jacqueline was saying, it turned into a full-time service. They built the first cancer-only gym, as far as I'm aware, in the country in 2015. <laughs> And 2019, because of need, had to build on an extension. And in fact, we ended up in Brussels in 2019 um, at the European Cancer... Or, uh, <laughs> I never remember this. European Cancer Patient Coalition. And an amazing centre, and we, we presented this data um, at this um, in Brussels last year. So it's really come a long way. And this, so our first question, is there a need? Yes, there is. Oh, can I not go back? Yeah. So need, answer is yes. Okay. Now, I couldn't let today go without acknowledging that it's Brexit day after three and a half years or whatever it is. But I don't want to make this flippant, but I thought this, this, come, this um, spoke to me, leap into the unknown. That's what happens when you're diagnosed. You have no idea what's going to happen. You know, so we have no idea what's going to happen after 11 o'clock tonight. So our data recording exercise we did for seven months and realized that the center actually is a catchment area because of it's in for seven different counties. People from seven different counties come to it. 
and we recorded 2,145 patient contacts in that seven months. And that's not counting the telephone contacts. And we're also missing the strive to survive um, and other things. So it's certainly not complete. So that would equate to about 3,677 annually. But again, this was, this was while building was going on as well. So I, I, we're definitely underestimating. So who's coming? The average age of people coming is 60. They're primarily women, two thirds are women. And, but also one third are family members. Um, and then there's a range, there's actually people with 16 different cancers coming to the centre. So currently there are 21 different um, services available. And I have to point out there's, uh, there's randomised control trial evidence for all of these um, services. But not content with the evidence, they also produced their own <laughs> intervention, which is the facilities card. And again, this was in response to men with prostate cancer who had real difficulty um, with toilet facilities in public. So what services do they use? So the people using the services, again, mostly were, were, were women, um, family members, about one fifth of the, of the services are used by family members. And again, um, people with all the different cancers are using the services. What kind of services are they? So there was 302 lifts to treatment, um, 90 counseling sessions. Honor saw 62 um, contacts, and that's once a month, just in seven months, okay? Um, Alex and Lisa had 111 people um, for exercise classes, lymphatic drainage, 48, people getting social welfare information, um, and also there were 482 lunches um, given in that time for people coming back from treatment, etc. And then a lot of complementary therapies, Healing Touch, Recce. Uh, Healing Touch has been used um, in integrated oncology in hospitals in the States at the moment, Healing Touch and Recce, um, as alternative pain medication to pharmacological, pharmacological um, treatment. Okay, so this is the kind of supportive services and the actual extent of it, but it's an underestimate. So then we asked these people, what are your needs? What are your unmet needs? So again, the people answering were similar to those who were attending the, the centre with regard to the kind of cancer they were diagnosed with and also the age. And you will see this is one of the major problems with, um, with cancer treatment or diagnosis. At diagnosis, 63% or two thirds were employment, but only one third when answering the, the um, actual survey, you know, so it has a huge effect on employment. Um, so how do they get their referral is primary, 41% uh, is from their health professionals, healthcare professionals like Katrina. Um, also, family members will have looked up this information for people, other cancer patients, and the social media or website, 10% um, people find it that way. Okay. And this was, so this man's stomino nurse told him about the centre and that he'd, he'd um, be able to get treatments here that would help him. And this, what this woman, what filled her with confidence was the fact that the centre works hand in glove with the hospital 
So that filled up our confidence to come here. So what are their needs? We see that nine out of 10 people reported at least one unmet need. And the primary need were psychological needs, followed by physical and daily needs. So this includes pain and fatigue, like Anna was talking about, us feeling very unwell and not being able to do what you used to do. We also have sexual um, unmet needs, so we'll hear more from Mary, um, information and patient care and support. So this is about reassurance, about having one person to talk to, okay? And the people at higher risk, women and those living alone, higher risk of, of physical and daily needs, not being able to do what you used to do. Health and support, those who are unmarried. But for psychological needs, there was no one group at risk, everyone was at risk. But the supports, you see, look, I'm a scientist. So I thought, starting this off, oh, we're just going to get people when they start, and we're going to get them to do this. And then, you know, four months later, we're going to get them to do this then. But that didn't happen, OK? So the other thing was, we'll be able to, somebody will come in, have one intervention, and we'll be able to see exactly what that intervention did. And then they'll have another, we'll be able to see exactly what that did. But I'm very happy to let go of assumptions. <laughs> um, this lady said, I tended for lymphatic drainage. The amount of, of distress caused by lymphatic drainage that I've uh, come to realise has been huge. She said she would have been completely stuck. It's a hugely expensive intervention and really affects quality of life. Some people end up in wheelchairs for the rest of their lives. So she got the lymphatic drainage. She was also able to attend the gym, which helped with the, with the lymphedema. And she said, it got me moving again, those two interventions. This one, this lady um, was living on her own. It was the only place to get food. She had no energy to make food for herself. Um, this person from counselling had um, his psychological needs met. This person got information regarding erectile dysfunction and also got a, purchased a pump and learned how to use it. And then this... This lady, her children used the, the CLIMB program. She was very distressed about it. But she said the children every night sang on the way home. And so she was delighted that they were getting some need met. But needs change through survivorship, okay? This man described his, his chemotherapy symptoms as so bad he just couldn't walk. He just couldn't walk. So for him, the healing, uh, the healing touch worked to help with his, uh, with his uh, neuropathy. And this woman used support groups after the operation. She used gym to build up her, her, her muscles. And also she, her movement was restricted. She couldn't move her arm above her, above her head. And that was helped with the gym. But also, she says, the social aspect was huge. Family members, it was more difficult to get family members. A lot of, especially the older family members said, but I wasn't the one who was sick. I, sure, what needs did I have, do you know? Um, but at the same time, those who did answer the survey, there was only 19, 75%, three quarters of them had an unmet need. Um, this woman said, it was the first time I was asked how I was. This man said, 
him and his family member came for counselling, been in touch, and the gym, because he couldn't get to the gym because he had a sick child. So he was able to use it when the child was having um, treatments. So we need to do a lot more work with regard to helping family members. People, using the, uh, people who replied to the survey said they obtained moral support. Two thirds of them said they obtained moral support, improved psychological well-being, and enhanced coping in daily life. They also had to help with physical improvements, fatigue, being able to sleep, eating, being fitter, more active, and improvements with lymphatic drainage. Acceptance, one third, had improved acceptance of their change of life. Oh, this was supposed to come up um, in animation. Sorry, I didn't. But again, being the scientist, I thought one thing, one change, okay? But that's not. So if we look at the physical, if we look at the unmet needs, so the physical and daily needs, so having lymphatic drainage, having um, shropathy, having a meal, information, exercise to help with, uh, with function, okay, and, and fatigue, health system and information. Again, your peer support, your um, information literally, um, your nutritional support or nutritional information, sexual um, unmet needs, having someone to talk to who understood and having information, patient care and support, someone to talk to, um, transport, someone to listen to and meals, you know, basically, they needed a lot, you know, and they availed of a lot. And this, this is what was meeting their unmet needs. I don't know if I'm giving that justice, okay? But I have to add a, a sixth one here, which is not included in the unmet needs, and that's spiritual, I think. I called it spiritual. Because you have your, it's the je ne sais quoi, Okay, you have the garden, you have the music, you have the art, all of which help in all of these as well. You've got the place to come and contemplate. Okay, but um, so when I was thinking about it, as the qualitative scientist head, basically what I, what I came up with is that it's a holistic care program, essentially, for the whole family. And there's also a lot of patient advocacy there. So that's what I think the centre does. And I think these are the supports that meet the unmet needs of the people coming. Um, but there are barriers to coming. This isn't for everyone. Some people, so almost one fifth, don't want to participate in group situations, okay? So they won't be able to. Some people have work commitments. Some people who answered the survey this time they don't want to talk about cancer, okay? So we have to find more ways to help these as well. But we're coming to that. <laughs> so what are the costs? So on average, people attending the centre had five different services. The frequencies changed. So there was an average about four, four counselling sessions, about four healing touch. The average transport was about 20. So the costs turned out at 1,318 and 25 cent per person, per patient. And if we were to extrapolate that to the 200,000 survivors, this is how much support services would cost in Ireland. But they had recommendations too. 
longer opening hours because some people can come. All of these primarily are to do with resources. Some people can come during the working days, expanding the services. Um, young people and children and teenagers were one of the things that they wanted. Um, that's, uh, you know, that these, these are at-risk groups that, you know, there aren't many services for. Now, I have to say, all of the rest of it has been sorted already because this was a two-way thing. So there's already more administration with Anna and um, Irina here who are so, uh, doing this. More, research, uh, more resources to make, they, uh, to make people aware that the service is here. And again, that's been, um, that's underway as well. Um, an, an option where people don't, who don't want to talk about their cancer with other people can just arrive for their treatment. And again, that has already been sorted with a second entrance that people can just come in and not meet anyone else. So when I, the other thing that, that I have to say about this is the responsiveness of the centre to the needs has been a sprint, you know, like if there's if if they can do something to meet something that's a barrier, they do it. But there are limitations to this. We've only got cross-sectional. Like I said, the scientists in me really want the longitudinal, but that we just couldn't get enough numbers. The views of the responders to the survey may differ from those who didn't. Um, again, we're missing some data, but that's all underway currently. And um, and like we've got measuring processes in places for everything now. Oh, wrong way. So in summary, the unmet needs or the needs of this community are huge, but they're being met and they're common, but they're being met by the centre. And the centre is so responsive to those needs. Um, but many, many different interventions are benefiting survivors. And it's just not a one thing will, one thing's going to work. You know, it's multiple supports are required. And, and these supports, the required supports will change at different points in survivorship. And, and, and again, this isn't for everyone, so we have to, we really have to work in it. And this is the first ever costing of uh, community-based cancer support um, that we know of. So that can be used by Helen, I hope, in her integration. Um, this has, we have a lot of people to thank. I, I just couldn't name everyone here. I should have, I'm sorry. Um, there's a huge amount and Breakthrough funded this. Um, Jacqueline, Mossy, Seamus, Irina, um, Anna, Alex, everyone, Margaret, I'm sorry, I can't see my... My lenses are the wrong prescription, so <laughs> I can't see everyone else here. Um, everyone, um, Katrina, Vicky, and um, these are some of the words that people have used about the place. Thank you very much, Francis. That was uh, very informative. Just uh, quickly, I want to just add to Francis's uh, project there. Um, every year we apply for Section 39 is funding for the centre. This year, we've been able to include all this information, which is a great help for our application. Not saying we get anything. We'd be very appreciative if we do, but it, that sort of information has been a great asset to us. Thank you very much. The next uh, speaker is Dr. Helen Greeley, National Clinical Lead in Psycho-Oncology. 
National Cancer Control Programme, Psychotherapy and Cancer. Thank you very much. So thanks, Jackie, and the team here for inviting me to come and speak today. And delighted. I, I it's actually not the talk that's on the paper because I'm actually going to talk to you about this stuff because it seems more relevant uh, uh, based on what I've heard so far from Francis and from Mary and all the other people here. So I'll tell you a bit about what we're doing with the National Cancer Control Programme and how it's all meant to link together. And I suppose I'm wearing the hat of cancer of the National Cancer Control Programme today, but I also work in Cancer Care West and run their services for cancer patients and their families in Galway City and also in Nehirkinney. Um, so I suppose, uh, that has really informed my work in the in the control program. Um, so I've been there since December two thousand and eighteen. So I'm there just over a year, and it's been a really uh, a really steep learning curve. A, a lot of what I learned, even though I brought a lot of information with me because I, I know a bit about it. Um, and I want, really want to talk about what Francis was saying there. So I suppose why you know, it's in the strategy now that we'll come to that in a second what's in the strategy about what it says about psychological support for cancer patients. But I guess why that's in the strategy is that a lot of people have done a lot of work over the last 10 years to really, really highlight the fact that um, uh, psychological uh, distress and coping problems are very much part of the cancer experience. That it's not just a medical or physical illness, that in fact a lot of cancer patients report that they really struggle with the psychological impact of what has happened to them. And that it doesn't just finish the day you walk out of the hospital, that in fact that's when it get, often gets really more difficult because uh, you realise I've got to live with this. And like everything in life, cancer is one of those things, you to live with it for a while before you realise what it's going to mean to you. Because you don't realise on day one the kinds of impacts it might have on you. So it's very much a learning experience for, for most patients and their families. And of course... Uh, very glad to see that Francis spoke about trying to measure the needs of families because we know from all the international research that approximately, like in our centre in Galway, last year we saw about 1,400 people and of them about a third uh, were family members and two-thirds were patients. So we know there's a real unmet, uh, there's a real need there for services. Um, how generally we see cancer now in the literature is that cancer is an abnormal experience that happens to normal people. So most people who get cancer don't have pre-existing psychological problems. They don't have depression or anxiety. They just get whacked out of the blue by this diagnosis of cancer. And not one size fits all. So every cancer is unique to everybody who gets it. And that's really important because we have to try and tailor our interventions and what we do with people and for people to really meet their needs. So you cannot say that just follow this route and you'll be fine. It's very much like what's going to work for me individually. And the distress that happens to people can happen at any point in the cancer journey. For a lot of people, the shock they get when they're diagnosed first is the biggest thing. But for a lot of people, it says they go on to live with cancer. And even the word survivor causes a lot of, um, I suppose, misinterpretation sometimes. We now, we define survivorship as you're a survivor from the day you're diagnosed with cancer, you're surviving cancer. A lot of cancer patients don't identify themselves as survivors, at least not when they're going to active treatment. So the whole role of survivorship in cancer is, is huge. So as I say, often it's only after you have time to live with it you realise what it's going to mean to you. And for, for a lot of patients, that entails even with the diagnosis for a period of time, long after the discharge from the centre of excellence, long after they go back to their own families. And... As the patient tries to adjust to the implications of the diagnosis, they've returned to normal life. And that's why centres like Balanus Law are so important, because most people do not want to get treated for their psychological distress in the hospital where they were attending for their treatment. They want to do as part of the community in which to live. And that's why cancer centres are so, so popular. There are 46 cancer centres in Ireland. And there are four national organisations like Canteen and UCAN 
um, you know, hand in hand, the Irish Cancer Society, the Marie Keating Foundation, all of them striving to try and get us to a point where we're going to have some kind of integrated cancer support services. Um, so survivorship is a very important uh, part of the cancer journey and quality of life. There isn't much point in living longer with cancer, your quality of life is going to be really affected by what happened to you. So things like deconditioning, uh, things like fatigue that goes on for far too long, uh, so all the side effects of treatment and the psychological impact all have to be treated so that people end up with the best possible outcome they can have for their cancer. And we, we treat cancer as one word, but in fact, cancer is unique to everyone who gets it. So everyone's experience of cancer is very different. You may have three or four people diagnosed with exactly the same cancer and exactly the same stage, stage of, the, of the illness. But in fact, they will have all different experiences because of the previous life experiences, because of the way they were treated when they were in hospital, how they got the news, what kind of support services were available. There are so many variables that affect people's outcome. So the National Cancer Strategy, which I'm delighted to be part of really, um, for the first time contains a specific recommendation uh, to, and this is it, each designated cancer centre, in other words, each of the eight centres that we have in the country, plus Crumlin, which is the ninth centre um, for children, will establish a dedicated service to address the psychosocial needs of patients with cancer and their families. And this will operate through a hub and spoke model uh, utilising the MDT, the multidisciplinary team approach to provide equitable patient access. And that's what my job is, is to drive that nationally. That's what I do. And when I work for the NCCP, that's what I'm meant to be doing every day. And I hope I am doing it to the best of my ability. So what are the facts about cancer? The facts are these. Between 45% and 55%, approximately half, of all cancer patients experience significant distress at some time in their life. And within that 50%, at least 15 to 20% have very significant psychological distress, which greatly impacts their quality of life. So this is not just something we made up. This is based on good international research. Um, and family members also experience distress, mainly because we know that watching someone you love go through a cancer diagnosis and not feeling you're able to help them has a huge impact on that person's quality of life. So for every one person who gets diagnosed with cancer, there are probably four or five others affected by that diagnosis. The most common difficulties psychologically that people report are anxiety, coping difficulties and fear of recurrence. Fear of recurrence for cancer survivors is one of the big, big issues. So much so that a lot of international research is now being done. There was a, a conference uh, a couple of years ago where there was a whole manual written about how you help people to cope with the uh, worrying about a recurrence of cancer. Um, and I guess this, just like Francis said there, why people don't seek help, they're afraid even to say, you know, I'm struggling psychologically because they're afraid they might be judged on that basis and they would be not seen as strong people. Uh, so they're often reluctant to seek support. And for every one person we help in God, we know there are at least three who don't come to our service. So it's uh, not... That is a big piece of work for all of us to do. Okay, I'm not going to go into this too much, except to say that the strategy and our interventions are based on this model. And the model of care base says that there are five different levels at which people might need support. And the top level there is the most basic one. And that's for people who are coping okay with their cancer, but might need things like good information oncology advice and um, so that's level one and that's available actually in a lot of hospitals today as well because there's a huge amount of support staff now and nursing staff available to support patients when they're going through their treatment um, and then you've got if you have kind of 
persistent mild distress or just not coping that well, but not too bad at the same time. And but maybe saying things like I'm more anxious than I used to be, or I'm much more aware of my health and I'm always checking myself, that kind of stuff. So that's level two. And they were usually treated in this new strategy by either the cancer teams in the hospitals and by education and training. But from three down is where it gets starts to get serious for people. And people who present with moderate distress or severe distress or organic states, like if you're affected because you're on steroids um, and it affects your mood and so on, uh, or you, you have uh, steroid-induced psychosis, they're really serious things. And thankfully, they don't happen to many people. But from level three onwards, the strategy recognises that we need specialist teams to support these people, which is why we are going to have, hopefully, um, multidisciplinary teams in hospital that treat psychological distress. Uh, I heard Francis saying that, that there were two, two um, hospitals in the country that um, have uh, dedicated psycho-oncology teams, and that is in James's and Vincent's, and they have been going the go a long time. And thankfully, Galway has definitely the basis of a, a new team since we have a full-time senior psychologist who works there now uh, with cancer patients, and that's funded by Cancer Care West, which is not the way it should be, but that is how it is at the moment. And this just kind of identifies in more detail what all those different levels are. Um, so this is the hospital team we're trying to build in each of those nine hospitals. Uh, psychological support from psychologists, social work support from, from social workers, a clinical nurse specialist who, who who's mentally health, mental health trained and who can assess people who may have distress, and psychiatry support. And psychiatry support, support really is having access to either liaison psychiatry or a full-time psychiatrist on the team who will be able to treat people who are significant, suffering significant levels of distress. Um, so this pathway that every patient talks about, when I leave the hospital and my treatment's over, I feel like I fell off a cliff. Where do I go then? I don't know where to go. I feel like no one's minding me. and I feel like nobody's really looking out for me. And that is one of the biggest sources of distress for patients. So that referral pathway that we're currently working on. So at the moment, we have two working groups in the NCCP one is a working group on the psycho-oncology model of care, which looks at things like these pathways and so signposting patients so they know where to go and know when they need help. And also, uh, well, I'll come back to the second one in a second because it's kind of more relevant to the support centre. The referral pathway should operate in both directions. So you can be referred to the support centre and you can also get referred back if you need it. Particularly if these teams are in place where there's more professional expertise available for specific kind of problems. And that's the hub and spoke model in operation. So even in Vincent's and James's, James's where there are well-established psycho-oncology services, uh, the hub and spoke model isn't really formalised there either. So we need to create, because most people are living in their own homes, in their own communities. They're not living near the hospital. So we have to think about how we're going to do that. Um, and then we've got a community cancer support team, which, which is also part of the strategy, and that is um, psychologists, counsellors, psychotherapists or other professionals with expertise and training in offering support to cancer patients and their families who are struggling with the impact of the illness on their life and cancer rehabilitation or survivorship specialists. And like obviously we know now from all the more recent research that physical exercise and physical uh, fitness is really important uh, in particular in, in terms of colorectal cancer and some breast cancers that it reduces the risk of recurrence. And because of that, there's a big emphasis now on physical fitness. So, I mean, when I hear um, Francis talking about the gym in, in, in Melanie's Glow, that's a fantastic achievement because actually that's really cutting edge stuff and lots of centres don't have that. Um, so, you know, the, to kind of be at the, at the, at the kind of, at the, at the kind of coal face of that is very good. Um, so, 
we were developing a model for support centres that has these three essential elements in it. Um, and that is that they have to give out good information and education, that they have to offer psychological support, especially in the management of distress and other related illnesses, uh, and survivorship programmes, including the provision of a cancer rehab and cancer survivorship programmes. So things like Cancer Tribe and Survive, for example, that is a survivorship programme. Uh, I think it's unrealistic, um, and when I heard Pat say there are 26 million to support patients, uh, I suppose the, uh, it's unrealistic to expect that uh, more funding will come from the from government for all of the services we need to support centres. So the model I think is going to happen is that we're going to have hopefully core funding for core services and but centres will also or will always have to fundraise for the add-ons that they want to do themselves. And I think that's a fair way out of it. Uh, but uh, because at the moment centres are getting no no statutory funding uh, from central government for running support services unless they're lucky enough to have a, a section 38 or a section 39. Generally, that was established before 2011. Any new applications don't seem to get very far. So we know it's a real uphill struggle to get funding for these services. So suggested ancillary services are these kinds of services, complementary therapies, uh, MLD, obviously hugely beneficial to a lot of patients, benefits advice. I won't go down through them all. Uh, but we do see it as a kind of a, a not a one-stop, one-shop, it's all, but we do want to be able to offer people services that they find beneficial and that we can find evidence for in the literature that these services work. And they are really the two criteria that we're really sticking to in terms of setting out a set of standards for support centres. Um, where did I go there? Uh, obviously, so we, sorry, I'll go back up. Uh, so these are the kind of people that, that work, will work with these services. And then these are other people that work, the complementary therapists, individual tutors or classes or groups as appropriate. And obviously every centre needs volunteers. So I think volunteers are very, very unique, very, very kind of essential, but really helpful part of the story of cancer and cancer support centres, and they're really a huge uh, benefit. Um, so not one size fits all in cancer support centres either, and there are some centres around the country that only open one day a week, and they op only open kind of part-time, because that's all the funding they have, or maybe they're in a place where they don't want to do more than that. I was struck by something Francis said there, that, you know, not everybody wants to go into groups. So, uh, and it's getting the balance right between offering individual supports and then offering group supports. And we do like the idea that people progress from individual to group support, but Irish people, a particular brand of people and a lot of them don't like talking in groups and we've certainly found that in Galway like we we, we kind of give more individual services certainly than we do groups um we don't expect every centre to have the same level of service and this you know the, the range of services say that people have so I think that's why we've gone the idea down the route of core services because I think to be to be a support centre you have to give the core services and then you can do your add-ons if you want to so I suppose it's useful to think of it as a continuum. Um, so what we're trying to get to really is that there will be statutory funding for the core services I talked about earlier on, and but centres will continue to have to fundraise and uh, to rely on donations for all other services that centre wants to offer. So we're not going to be like an any state where we say you have to do this, but if you, I think for centres to attract funding, those core services of information and support education psychological support for individuals and families, and uh, survivorship interventions. They're the ones that are act definitely will probably attract the funding. Um, so what I'm doing at the moment, these are kind of some of my jobs, development of a hospital multidisciplinary team. And uh, as I say, we all last year looking for funding and 
thankfully was a little bit successful. It got some funding. Um, we have a working group on expanding the psycho-oncology model of care because it's not a strategy. It is fine, but in no way. Like it doesn't mention viral pathways, for example. That's a big issue for patients. So we want to expand it out to include GPs and mental health teams and so on in the community so that everybody's part of the same story and people know where to go. Uh, we also have a working group on developing standards for support centres, and that is about governance and stuff like that. So you know, how, how people are governed, whether they're part of this, uh, you know, comply with charity regulators, uh, you know, how they, the kind of staff that work on them, whether they have a model where it's all volunteers who offer services or whether it's paid employees. So I suppose what I learned so far is all cancer centres, psycho-oncology services have deficits some more than others. So obviously, uh, the, when I talk about cancer centres there, I'm talking about the hospitals. So, you know, they have some psycho-oncology services, often very piecemeal, maybe one day a week or something. And we're hoping to get teams in place for each of those centres. Um, a lot of disparity in terms of ge geographic coverage. So some places in the country are really well served by cancer support and other places aren't. The lack of a referral pathway is a huge issue for a lot of people. And that is for patients, I'm talking about now. The concerns of funding, which are ongoing, 